Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this week's lesson from the Book of Romans, we look at Condemnation Part 3, the Jew, as we learn that God condemns anyone who trusts in their external ancestry or activity for righteousness instead of in Jesus Christ. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 and join us as we continue to learn that God's righteousness for the unrighteous is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are in the midst of condemnation. We are uh, working our way through a very happy, happy topic of condemnation, but it's, it's a very important topic because we need to understand just how deserving we are of God's judgment and God's wrath, but just how gracious God is in Christ so that we do not experience His ultimate judgment and His ultimate wrath. Instead, we experience by faith His righteousness and we experience salvation through Christ. So we, uh, this week is our third week in condemnation requiring the gospel, and then next week will be our final week. We'll actually hear from Fred Ligon, the pastor of Williamsburg Christian Church, will be teaching us next week and finishing up our section on condemnation. For today, condemnation part three, the Jew. And this is interesting that Paul highlights how uh, the Jew, and I'll explain what I mean by that. What I want to say right from the start, this is not an anti-Semitic message. I want you to hear me on that. Uh, Paul himself, as a Jew, is writing about the natural condemnation that Jews who rely on the law for their justification are deserving of the same condemnation that all of us are. And I'll, I'll map that out. And speaking of maps... Because we enjoy maps here at the Friday Men's Breakfast, this indeed is a map of the Mediterranean Sea. You can see where Rome is located there on the upper left. Paul wrote from the city of Corinth around A.D. 56 or 57 and sent this letter to this church that he had never visited, but he knew of its reputation. So to start out on this message about condemnation, I'm grateful for Dale and for Ryan bringing this truth out. Uh, condemnation, yes and no. And this, uh, as we read Romans 8.1, fast-forwarding several months from now, we read, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We deserve it, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we are spared from it because of His grace and God's righteousness imparted upon us through faith in Christ. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the Jew. And I want to remind us of some of the purposes and the characteristics of this letter of Romans. Because Paul intended to provide some great instruction to help the Roman church live faithfully, particularly when this related to the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians within the church. Paul also wanted to clarify that he was not anti-Jewish. He's not an anti-Semite. He himself is Jewish. I can remember um, talking with some people, and they were wondering, well, was, was Jesus anti-Jewish? And I said, no, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus still is Jewish in his resurrected glory. Um, Paul is not an anti-Semite. He's not anti-Jew, and he is not anti-law, which means he's not an antinomian, which means he's not saying that the law has no value, the law has no purpose, the law is good. And he'll touch upon that in this passage today at the end of Romans 2 and the, as we get into chapter 3. Um, the timing and method of Christ's saving work 
has pointed out both the distinctions and similarities between Jews and Gentiles. And both Jew and Gentile are equally loved by God and equally justified before Him by faith. And then finally, uh, Paul is, in this section, been working through the equal condemnation of all people, both the Gentile or the Greek, and now the Jew before God. And so, again, this is not an anti-Semitic message. But it's interesting to see and read how Paul highlights, uh, specifically for the Jew, the condemnation that is naturally uh, due to Jews who are relying on the law for their justification or their righteousness. So, who are the Jews? Just to give us an understanding of exactly who Paul is, is writing about, including himself. Jews are the ethnic descendants of Abraham who are God's chosen covenant people. And we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham that he has chosen him and his future descendants to be um, his special covenant people, that Abraham would receive a great piece of land, he would receive many descendants, and he would be a blessing to the world. And we know that as you weave the tapestry in the story of Scripture, the ultimate blessing and the ultimate descendant of Abraham ethnically, is Jesus, who is the ultimate blessing to all nations. The Jews are called by many names, as you read throughout the history of the Bible, known as sometimes the Hebrews in the time of Moses. The Israelites certainly are Jews. And this term, certainly by the time you get to the New Testament. Now, the word Jew itself is a, a word that comes from Judah, so in the Babylonian exile, around 586, 587 B.C., when people from the land of Judah were brought over to Babylon, the Babylonians chose to call them Jew, and they may have chosen to call themselves Jews as well because they were people from Judah. It was sort of a shorthand way to say of where they were from. The word Judah itself means praise, which is interesting. That comes into play at the end of chapter 2. To this day, there are many ethnic descendants of Abraham, many Jews. Uh, some here may have, some here may be Jewish or have Jewish uh, ancestry in their family tree. Most Jews, however, have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Um, certainly, you have secular Jews who would claim no religious affiliation, but most Jews who are religious and have faith would say that the Messiah has not come yet. And so we see that tension even in Jesus' day when the Jewish and religious leaders rejected him as Messiah and Savior. Regardless of this rejection, God still loves them and desperately wants them to repent and come to a knowledge of the truth as Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior. And we read later in Romans chapters 9, 10, 11, Paul says the same thing. He desperately wants his fellow Jews to know the truth of the gospel. Jews are one of the hardest people groups in all the world. Thinking about uh, those missionary-minded friends like Dale and others. Uh, one of the hardest people groups to share and bring to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ are the Jews. And you have ministries like Jews for Jesus and Chosen People Ministries that specifically minister to Jewish people around the world. So regardless of uh, the distinctions that might be made between Jew and Gentile, and even Paul's distinctions here, we must remember that the gospel, as we learned in week one, is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first, first for the Jew and then for the Greek, Romans 1.16. 
So let's look at our big idea moving into chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 8. And I uh, was looking through some notes from a a late professor of mine named Harold Honer, and uh, he helped me think through this section in this way. Uh, It reads like this, God condemns anyone who trusts in external religious ancestry or activity rather than in Jesus Christ who alone brings internal or spiritual transformation through the truth of the gospel. So God condemns anyone who trusts in external religious activity or ancestry or activity rather than in Jesus Christ. So let's look at walking out here in this section, first of the law-reliant Jews, then inward Jews, And then the advantage of the Jews. So first, the law-reliant Jews. Chapter 2, verse 17. If you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 2. always encourage you to have a copy of the Scriptures or at least an application on your tablet or smartphone that allows you to access God's Word. And we will read chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against Stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul concludes that paragraph with a citation from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 5. So as we think about this, as Paul is addressing specifically the Jews, he's talked about all are deserving of condemnation, and he'll highlight that again next week in the end of chapter 3. But as he's talking about the equal deserving of condemnation, he decides to now focus on, especially for any of his Jewish readers who may have an improper understanding of what makes them really truly righteous, which is faith in Jesus, rather than adherence to and obedience to the law, Paul tries to now focus in on Jews who believed that they could, much like the moralist, maintain a righteousness through obedience to the law. And that goes back to what Ryan was teaching us last week. So in many ways, the Jews could be a category of the moralist who believes, well, I'm righteous because I'm good, because I obey. And Paul begins to pick apart that line of thinking by basically saying, you actually don't obey <laughs> like you think you obey. You are a law-reliant Jew, meaning you're relying on your obedience to the law to obtain your righteousness. But the truth is, you're actually not obeying the law like you think you are. Therefore, you're not actually gaining any righteousness through it. And he, he uses some interesting words in verse 18. Uh, being instructed from the law. That word instructed is katakomenos, where we get our English word catechesis. So that idea of some teaching and some instruction. But then he goes on to make sure that these words, uh, that the 
I guess you could say uh, the, the spiritual posture of these law-reliant Jews led them to see themselves as a guide, as a light, as an instructor, as a teacher, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth. But in truth, they were actually hypocritical. Because Paul goes on to say, you say you don't commit adultery, but in many ways you do commit adultery because of the thoughts that go through your head. See Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, You abhor idols, but yet you rob temples. Some Jews in that day would actually take uh, silver and gold from pagan temples and and remove it from them uh, out of some sort of justification for their faith being better and truer than false pagan idolatry. Uh, But Paul's saying, you're actually still breaking the law because you're stealing. And so the Jew who was law-reliant was actually standing on a very crumbling foundation because that was never going to provide the salvation and the righteousness and the justification that they believed they had because they were not actually obeying the law. Now, a professor of mine named Tom Constable uh, writes the following. Undoubtedly, Paul did not mean that every single Jew practiced these sins, But these sins represented the contradiction between claim and conduct that marked Judaism. Again, pious Jews in Paul's day believed that everyone else was destined for judgment and condemnation except for themselves. These self-righteous and proud Jews, they had the law of Moses, but the law of Moses was not helpful if the law of Moses was not obeyed and applied. And so ultimately... This led to a spiritually fruitless and sad conclusion, which was that even the name of God was blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the failure of some of these Jews to actually obey the law. So while they thought that they were righteous simply because they had the law, they were not actually walking it out. And the sad aspect of this is that God had selected Israel to be his emissaries to the nations and to be a holy people set apart and to obey him and to trust him. But we see time and time again throughout history that they did not. They did not. They did not ultimately testify to the truth of Yahweh because they disobeyed. And instead, their disobedience led to the blasphemy of God's name among people in other nations. So these self-reliant Jews, these law-reliant Jews, were condemned just like the moralist. So Paul begins moving in a direction to explain uh, what God really wanted from his people, from the Jews, and I would say from us as well, which is not just an external religious following, but an internal transformation of heart which is our next section, the inward Jews. Let's read verses 25 through the end of the chapter. For circumcision is, indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Circumcision is not, a, uh, not, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. 
And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. To understand circumcision, and some of us understand circumcision, but to understand the significance of circumcision within the Jewish faith and within the covenant of God with Abraham, the circumcision was a sign that all of Abraham's male descendants from the age of eight as when they would be circumcised, uh, were to go through this ritual of circumcision as a symbol of them being set apart as the covenant people of God. It would be a physical reminder, especially to the men, every time they got dressed in the morning, that I am set apart by God because of my ancestor Abraham and God's faithful promises to me. And therefore, I should live in line of God's covenant promises and be obedient to him and trust him. It was a sign of the covenant with Abraham, a visible symbol of the spiritual promises of God. And it still is a sign and a reminder of that that covenant with Abraham. And it was a defining characteristic of the Jewish faith. Now, other peoples, other pagans and Gentiles would also go through the rite of circumcision but it only had the meaning of being this sign for God's people and for Abraham's descendants because of what God wrote, what Moses wrote about in Genesis 17. So actually what Paul is writing here is that circumcision ultimately has no value if you're just breaking the law. So if you say, well, as a Jew, well, I'm circumcised, so I'm, I'm therefore righteous because God set me apart. Look at me. I'm just going to go ahead and violate all the other commandments of the law, but I'm circumcised. And Paul's saying, no, no, circumcision has no value in that way. In fact, you might as well be uncircumcised if that's the posture that you take to life, which would have been horribly offensive to the Jews because uncircumcision was such a, um, a demeaning and defiling idea to them because circumcision was so important to them. But if circumcision became the be-all, end-all of their existence, then ultimately they were missing the point. God did not ultimately care most about that external sign. He cared mostly about the internal and the heart. Other than that, circumcision simply becomes an empty religious ritual. Many Jews in Paul's day actually believed just because they were circumcised that they would be spared from condemnation and perdition. But again, being circumcised was not the point. Obedience to God's commandments mattered as well. Someone wrote that what the label says on the bottle of a beverage does not matter, but the contents of what's in the can matter, right? Right? Because you could have something on the outside that says this contains this many grams and this many calories and this is what it is. But if that's not what's actually in the the container, then the the outside label just doesn't matter. And of course, God wants both the external and the internal to match each other, but it must come from inside out. Circumcision of the heart. You see on there Deuteronomy 10.16. This is where this language shows up for some of the first time in the Old Testament. As Moses says to God's people, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Now guys, if you were with us this past year as we studied lessons from the Israelites in the wilderness... This was a topic that we indeed did talk about on April 29th of 2022, back to this spring. So 
If you missed it, you can go back on the website, wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast, and you can go back. We did indeed have a lesson on circumcision of the heart, and we learned the following truths. One is that physical circumcision is external, and it reminded the descendants of Abraham of their collective covenant commitment to the Lord. In many ways, the message was, you need to be cut off at your eighth day or you're going to be cut off from the community of God. There's, a, there's very much of a wordplay there. The Bible, might, the Bible is, is very literal in this respect um, and very intentional in some of the, the shock value of the language that God wants us to hear. But we also find through that that spiritual circumcision is internal, and that refers to the inner commitment or disposition of surrender and obedience to the Lord. And this internal circumcision is necessary in order to love God in the first place, because true circumcision is genuine and spiritual, and it's a transformation that is internal. It's demonstrated by an outward obedience. For that reason, genuine love for God and a genuine obedience to God is an inside-out operation. And the word operation is very intentional there. If you were here back in April, I shared about me observing one of my son's circumcisions and, and the doctor was shaking a little bit as he went in for the cut and I was going, whoa, doc! And I swear, I even heard the, the, the scalpel tapping on the metal thing. Anyway, just to, I've got some... Some issues to get over there, but, um, but it's an operation, right? But, but true circumcision of the heart is an inside-out operation as the scalpel of the Holy Spirit must transform us from the inside, leading to an outward life of obedience. And that's why we find from these scholars, Kyle and Delich, without circumcision of the heart, true fear of God and true love of God are both impossible. So we can go through the outward motions, we can go to church, we can show up to a, a men's breakfast Bible study, uh, we, can, we can even be disciplined in, in reading the Bible, but we have to see the Lord and understand our need for the gospel and our need for that internal transformation that we can't manufacture in our flesh, we can't manufacture in our own human strength. Hopefully, we will choose to obey God's commandments from a genuinely transformed heart and an inner life. And that's what God delights in. Not the outward, but the internal that leads to the outward genuine obedience. And that's only possible through the gospel. That's why our need for the gospel is, is even more evident because we can't manufacture this genuine obedience on our own. It's only a matter of God's grace working in and through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Well, our final section of Scripture for this morning is the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. The advantage of the Jews, because Paul, and this is the, the fascinating idea that, that Paul writes in this letter, and we've talked about this a little bit over this pa the past few weeks, that Paul unfolds the whole letter of Romans like a, a well-trained attorney who has done his homework in the court of law, and is anticipating the objections of his opponents to his argumentation. And we begin to see that very clearly at the start of chapter 3. And we'll see it, he carries it throughout much of the rest of the letter. As he anticipates at least four objections in these verses and asks four rhetorical questions 
to, um, to compete against and to undermine the argumentation of these theoretical objectors who may say, well, based off of what you've just written, Paul, this is what I conclude. And Paul's going to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's keep things in perspective and remember what's true. So this is known as the diatribe form of rhetoric. Um, let's read verses 1 through 8 and then go back and make some observations. Chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Parenthetically, I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil to do that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. I, I tried to sort of read in a different voice. I'm not the best at it. To read as the objectors and what they would say to these arguments being made by Paul. Um, again, Paul, like an attorney in the courtroom. Was it Ben Matlock? That, um, who, who played Ben Matlock? Andy Griffith, right, of course. I've, I've been to Manio, where he's from anyway. Um, it's almost like he's, he's anticipating what the opposing side is going to say, and he, he writes it in and he bakes it into his argumentation. Um, so one of the false deductions that Paul anticipated is that, well, if Jew and Gentile are equally condemned, and if there's no value in, in circumcision in the law if you're disobeying the law, like, does it have any value at all? Does the Jew have any advantage of all? And Paul says, absolutely, yes. Let's not... Throw the baby out with the bathwater here, friends. Indeed, circumcision does have value, and the Jews do have advantages. For example, they were those that received the very words of God in the Old Testament. These, uh, the sacred scriptures and the promises of the Messiah, the Jews received those. Indeed, that was an advantage to them. They received the covenant promises that God made to Abraham and through Abraham, as well as the covenant promises of the new covenant, which was inaugurated through Jesus and is continuing to be fulfilled through the Holy Spirit in my life and yours. What, uh, what they also anticipated was that the faithlessness of the Jews nullified the faithfulness of God. And Paul says, absolutely not. By no means. Some translations would say uh, that this Greek phrase, meganoita, which is repeated ten times in the book of Romans alone, um, can be translated by no means or may it never be. One of my professors, and I, I say this here because a professor in seminary said it in a classroom, he said that a more crass Vernacular translation of this could be, hell no. Absolutely not. 
The faithlessness of the Jews does not nullify the faithfulness of God. And Paul wanted to set that record straight. Just because many of the Jews rejected God's truth and God's ways, it does not nullify God's true and righteous ways. Even the faith, the faithless generation walking through the wilderness did not nullify God's promises, and he eventually brought the next generation into the land. Interestingly, Paul quotes as a, as a proof text here in a good way from Psalm 51.4. If anyone knows the context of Psalm 51, this is David's great um, his re repenting psalm of confession after he is called out by Nathan the prophet for having an affair with Bathsheba and committing her husband uh, to be killed on the front lines, i.e. adultery and murder, lying. David was breaking almost all the commandments at one time. And yet he writes in conviction and repentance and remorse this Psalm 51 and Paul inserts that here to say, yes, David was faithless, but God remained faithful. David's uh, the situation with David was almost the, the apex of rejection, rebellion, and sin. And yet God was faithful, and, and God used David and restored David. And one of David's descendants is Jesus. God remains faithful. Some would say, well, if the unrighteousness, and this is where some people took the argumentation, at least Paul was anticipating it, and some kind of still do today. Well, if our unrighteousness heightens God's righteousness, then maybe what we need to do is keep being unrighteous. Because by deduction of thought, it's heightening God's glory, and it's making Him look better. <laughs> uh, no, that is not the case. <laughs> And then Paul puts another repeated phrase in here in verse 8. What shall we say to this foolish, fallacious, false argumentation? This phrase, what shall we say, is repeated seven times throughout the book of Romans. God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? That was some of the, the thinking. Well, if our unrighteousness is heightening his righteousness, then he is, he is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us for doing what brings him more righteousness. Paul says, by no means, absolutely not. Some were trying to deduce that if our unrighteousness heightens God's righteousness, then God is unrighteous to judge and condemn us for our unrighteousness. God is perfectly righteous and the only one qualified to judge the world. This mere human reasoning would claim that we should not be condemned for our sin because our sin shows how, God, how glorious God is and how unglorious we are. Therefore, we shouldn't be condemned. In fact, we should just keep doing evil because it results in more good. Paul is very quick to cut this false thinking down at the knees because the truth is it is just false. And he doesn't even address how ridiculous this claim is at the end. He just simply says their condemnation is just. He raises and responds to the objections in 3, 1 through 8, some of which are still raised today. Again, from Tom Constable. Self-righteous people still raise these objections. Some people assume that because God has blessed them, he will not condemn them. That's objection one. Some people believe the character of God prohibits him from condemning them. That's objection two. Some people even think that though they have sinned, God will be merciful and not condemn them. That's objection three. Some feel that since everything we do glorifies God in some way, God would be unjust to condemn them. 
That's objection four. Let's not hold to these objections. Let's not justify sinful behavior thinking that our sin makes God look better. Because just like the Israelites, God was blasphemed among the Gentiles because of their failure to obey. God calls us to be an obedient people, but that obedience must come from the inside out. As we think about applying this and, uh, and how we would move out today as disciples of Jesus Christ, we remember our big idea that God condemns anyone who trusts in external religious ancestry or activity rather than in Jesus Christ, who alone brings the internal spiritual transformation that is required for us to have true righteousness, and that comes through faith. Jew and Gentile were and still are equally deserving of God's condemnation because both groups of people are sinful and in need of forgiveness. You may have been raised in the church your whole life. I know that my parents did the right thing. They, they raised us in church, and that was part of my foundation. I was talking with Junius just the other day about um, even, even in the Episcopal Church where I spent many years, the Episcopal Church itself, uh, liberal and, and left the gospel in many respects, um, at least where I attended, but that was part of the foundation that God laid in my life. But I assumed when I was really young that I was, I was a Christian and I was saved because I went to church, because I was a good kid, because I was an American. I don't know, all kinds of reasons that I could have assumed that, you know, that I was saved, but it wasn't until I came to the point, as I know many of you have, that you recognize just how unrighteous we are, regardless of where we went to church, regardless of how much money we give to charity, regardless of our externals, that internally we are lost apart from Christ. And we need to make sure not to place our trust in our externally pious lives. And instead, we must trust in Jesus Christ, who alone transforms us from the in side out. Otherwise, we'll be like these self-righteous Jews and the moralists who believe that trusting in our externals is what accomplishes salvation and righteousness. They still broke the law. We still disobey. We have to come to the point where our only hope for salvation and forgiveness is the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death for our life. His resurrection for our justification and our righteousness. His righteousness for our unrighteousness. And that comes by faith. We have to trust in Jesus. And this is the result of the circumcised, softened heart. And when we have experienced this life-transforming shift, it leads to a transformed life for us. We realize that God's faithfulness, His Holy Spirit, convicts us and equips us to live a faithful life a life defined by surrender, repentance, and obedience to Jesus. And the wonderful news, guys, is that when we fail, and we will, we simply turn back to him in confession and repentance. And amazingly, he wipes it clean and says, I make all things new. Come back. Let's start again. I'm so grateful for the truth of the gospel, that God's righteousness for the unrighteous, that is you and me, is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us today. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast. I hope you'll join us again for our next installment in our study of the Book of Romans. 
Until then, know that you have been set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God bless and have a great week.